Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest today is Natalie Placencia, an artist that, in my opinion, is able to capture and convey human struggles, emotion, and hope in bronze, wax, plaster, and other materials. Placencia's work is displayed in various churches and other sacred places, which leads us to talking about the faith that motivates her work, which understandably gives her a heart for the oppressed, those in despair, immigrants, and others. We also talk about her own family's flight from socialist Cuba and that time she met a congested Bono. One of the things that attracted me to your art is the elements of faith that come across. And it's not just, well, here's a you know, picture of Jesus you know, with children, but it's like it seems to convey a lot of epicness like the epic of those, the biblical tales and of faith. So explain your, maybe your faith journey, but also how it, uh, in your mind, comes out in the art or what you're trying to say. I know there's like three or four questions in there, but uh, pick any or ignore them all, whichever. All right. Well, uh, I think that those are actually excellent questions. I think that um, faith is a mystery, Um, But not only is it a mystery, it's very necessary. I believe that when it's the most difficult moments, we, we want to address a higher being. And once you acknowledge the fact that your higher being, if you're a believer, has a name, and his name is God, and he's a loving God, that sense of mercy, uh, compassion, love, forgiveness, everything just comes back to you. So it's a, I think that as humans, we have moments of desperation and we have moments of joy. And I believe, and maybe it's the way I've been brought up, faith is a grounding life source. And when it comes to my artwork, uh, very early on, it kind of goes into my faith story or this quote-unquote calling that I think some people hear it and some people don't and some people have a more sensitive ear to it or sensitive heart to it and I couldn't ignore it I guess is the word (laughs) I think it was definitely a very good experience that I had growing up my uh, parents were, I would say, exceptional role models for me. My father was a construction manager, architect, and the way he dealt with the workers was uh, very human. You know, he acknowledged their dignity. It was never bad talking them or talking down to them. And then uh, my mom, she raised us and gave us everything that she had. And that was, for me, an example of of a loving parental guidance, I guess, is more the word. They guided me. And so I think that in that safe bubble that my parents gave me, both as a childhood, as happy times, as tough times, as financially very difficult times, as health moments were extremely 
uh, delicate for my dad. Uh, things seem to work out and we, we always seem to come through. And I say we because I think my family journey is very much based on my family. We've always seemed to push each other forward and, and up, kind of say it as it is, be upfront, be honest, but with hard times that life gives us, we've always found that safe haven, harbor within each other. I think I always feel like I need to, not need to, but I want to express this gratitude and express how lucky I am, I guess, is the, the you know, the very normal feeling is I'm so lucky. And then kind of going into working in social work, I always wanted that to be my source of inspiration, just in terms of social work. Not, and in art too, but I always felt like I have something that I can give. And that's that like safe harbor, especially as a counselor, as a therapist, that was like, when it comes to working with people who have gone through trauma, I have often felt humbled because I realized I, I haven't gone through such hardships. And then at the same time, I, I feel so much that I have to like, for myself, it's kind of like vicarious traumatization. But I think it takes courage to step into those wounds. It takes courage to read those stories. And it's a sense of acknowledging that other person's dignity, whether I can help or not. Sometimes just listening, I believe, was one of the biggest skills that they taught us as, as therapists. So I think that's where my faith journey has led me to all aspects of my life, whether it's with my family or my workplace or the foundry I'm working at now or any environment. I kind of, that's the role I take. I don't know, maybe it's because I was the third and the only girl, but. (laughs) (laughs) That explains a lot. So most of your art, from what I'm able to gather, it's like being used at churches. But do you ever show it in public like maybe art shows or art galleries? Right now, the work I have is commissioned. Mm. It's commissioned for a public place, if that's titled correctly, Mm. for the churches. And then I just installed one at an Episcopalian church, which was a beautiful experience. It seems as if when, when I came out of art school, I had like this, I think, growing up moment. where I felt like I need to get a job. Like this is kind of, yeah. I loved art and I, and I, it was extremely difficult to like tear myself away from that. But I kind of, with some encouragement from my, from my mom more than anything, she's a tough cookie. She's like, you need to study something that you're going to get a job in. And that's when I went head first into the master's in social work and I continued and I got my license. And so I worked <laughs> For 10 plus years in social work, working with uh, domestic violence, working with severe emotionally disturbed foster care kids in the foster care system. I worked with juveniles in the juvenile justice system here. I also worked with the homeless population and domestic violence. So that calling came back for sure. By that time I had done a few paintings but they were like 
very private faith moments. That's where that idea of art as prayer really came in. It was time invested not only in the artwork, because I think the artwork was almost secondhand product to what really the discernment, the processing, and the, the silent meditation that I can step into. And and I've taken it on as like, no, this is mine. I'm going to be, this is what I, this is my problem solving. This is, this is the route. Like everybody has kind of like a, a rituals, habits that they can kind of step into their concentration. And for me, the, I titled it prayer. Like I think that's prayer. So some of the pieces that I did during those times were for my spiritual guides, my spiritual directors. And that, I don't know how that happened. I just felt like I need somebody who's going to be guiding me because there was just so many things that, I don't know, just as a teenager growing up and then as a young adult, I always found that my spiritual guide made, I don't know, made sense to me, you know? So that's also something that I've, I've held on to. And now more than anything, when it comes to these commissioned art pieces, for it to be theologically sound, I find it essential. There's no way I would do any art piece unless it was with the guide of someone who was strictly trained that I highly admire, you know, for their spirituality. And and I, I don't mess with that part. Like, I'm like, that's kind of a rock I, I do hold on to. Like, for example, right now, my spiritual guide is um, Father Giuseppe, and he's a Franciscan friar of the Renewal, and they work with the poor. That's their thing, and I admire their life. The message is clear. We're on Earth for a very short period of time. I make it count, like really make it count. There was a time in probably Western culture where uh, anybody would see a picture of maybe a crucifix or uh, maybe the, the picture of you know, Jesus in the boat, and they would know exactly what story that was about. You know, they would have some point of reference. There was a time. I think those times are gone. And so have you ever had an encounter with someone who wasn't familiar with these stories, and they saw your, your work, and they're like, What's that? And did they have some kind of reaction, a good or bad? Uh, the foundry that I work in, everybody's Cuban. So they don't know. Really? They don't know. They were raised in an atheistic government. Got it. So they're, they're more recently, like fresh off the boat. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And it becomes a learning opportunity, not only for me to understand my brothers and sisters that stayed over there, but also for me to understand how delicate, I guess, the human soul is and how innate it is for us as humans to search, search for God, search for that higher being that gives us purpose. So they ask me all the time. They're like, what's going on in here? Like, is, is this Christ? And I'm like, yeah, that's Christ. And this is the moment when God told him this. 
and Christ reacted like this and St. Peter did this. And so, and I see it that they're just like taking it in, you know, like, Oh, I've, I've seen something like that, but I've never, I've never heard it that way, you know? And even uh, this last piece that I did with the, the Trinity, the rings, I forgot the formal name of the rings. They're like, well, are we going to the Olympics? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can add a few more and they're in the Olympics. And they're like, no, no, no. What about that other car company? And I'm like, Audi. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it an Audi? I'm like, no, guys, no. <laughs> Whatever. But I, it's an opportunity to be able to share your faith. And I think it's a beautiful opportunity because we've kind of become friends along the lines of working in the same space. But also they see my mannerisms, they see my my gestures or my responses and and it's it's a perfect opportunity as a female working in an all male foundry, mm-hmm. it's you know, it can be a challenge sometimes. Right. And and they are very respectful of me. And and that goes again into who I am as a person and and I'm a, a woman of faith. I believe I am a, a woman of faith. And I think that I've demonstrated to them as people I come across with that faith is something that is tangible, that is out there, and that is very much for us. It's not for the elite or it's not for the disturbed or it's not for the judgmental. It's when it comes to the, the three rings that I was explaining, well, that's the Trinity. So, well, that's the Father, that's the Son, that's the Holy Spirit. And they're like, oh, of course. So I'm like, okay, cool. You know, let's just keep going. And then they like the textures, they like the emotions, they like the movement and stuff like that. So those are mainly the people I come in contact with that I would actually share these stories of faith. Typically, it's kind of like preaching to the choir if I'm talking to the priest that commissioned the piece. Sure. <laughs> Well, that's that was the reason why I asked is because uh, this co- conversation has come up before in other episodes, uh, particularly with a, a musician and poet named Steve Scott. We've talked about like how do you make art from a Christian point of view and make it evangelical? How do you tell the story uh, without it being you know maybe so obvious or losing its artistic value without it being propaganda? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's why I asked you that question. Do you have any thoughts on that? Obviously, you're being commissioned to do a certain particular thing, but um, have you ever thought like, okay, I'm going to make a piece that conveys this element of the gospel that you know that's really important to me, or I think would really help people? I have one piece that I've applied for a local show space. So going back to showing and having galleries or having shown my work publicly, I find that I have like a, kind of two routes to my work. So I have strictly strictly religious commissioned work, and then I've got the more uh, human rights, activism stuff, because it's kind of however I can convey the idea, I go that route. And I think that when I, when I go towards the human rights, you can abstract our Christian ideas, ideology, into a very universal concept of dignity, treating others with dignity, of beauty. I think that that's where beauty really comes in. 
I think that beauty has a strong element of respect. And, and unless we can respect the object we're viewing, we wouldn't be doing it justice, you know, in terms of the arts, in terms of the arts more than anything. When discussing any person or any concept, a great deal of respect has to be put in, or it just becomes your own self-driven ego. If you could see Christ in somebody else, how would you possibly disrespect that? And, and, and when it comes to art, I mean, it's everywhere. Some art is extremely vulgar, aggressive, invasive. It's not what I would ever do. These installations, I want the viewers to feel that deep respect for the subject matter, deep respect for, for, for the materials. And it comes down to anybody can go in there and badmouth anything. It doesn't really matter. That's not necessarily a criticism that would affect me. If, if, if it was some sort of offense, it's not that we could be, you know, catering to everybody's sensitive buttons, but it's, it's not the goal. The goal is not to throw somebody out of the water. Like <laughs> the goal is not to make somebody look the other way. The goal is to, to bring somebody in, to invite somebody, to create that space and that moment of quiet meditation, of discernment. Tell me how to slow down, turn around, let me change the way I'm going. No, I don't want to let go of all the things that I know are keeping me away from my life. You have a heart for the oppressed. You've, you've mentioned this in a little bit in our correspondence, but also in your bio. The word oppression has different it's, it's a relative term, of course. And so, as I mentioned to you, there's probably a very well-off college kid who thinks he's oppressed or he or she is oppressed at this point. Uh, and then you have um, maybe even the poor in America or, or you know, maybe somebody who's made a lot of horrible choices and yet they, they, they're oppressed. But then you have ones that maybe it's not their fault at all or that maybe live in other countries especially like we've talked about how uh, like in China and uh, Cuba and you have different people that have just been imprisoned for their beliefs, whether they be political or faith. So first of all, I mean, how would you define that term? Because obviously you, if you're seeing with your work in, the, in social work, you're seeing a particular kind of oppression. But then also with your, your knowledge of history, your Cuban backdrop, you've got to have a, your own ideas about oppression. I think that oppression definitely has a strong element of trauma. There's been violations of very basic needs, whether that be safety, whether that be food, whether that be privacy. Yeah, I think it comes down to the basic needs that somebody, you know, any child would need to be raised in a safe home. And by safety, I have, there's volumes that can go under safety, but nonviolent home. Uh, loving home. I mean, I think that the home translates to the community, translates to the you know to the the whole country. But it's not necessarily a population I've ever been drawn to in terms of like uh, civil rights movements. It's it's not something that's drawn me. Definitely, what has drawn me in 
in terms of populations that I've worked with are trauma-based and it seems as if they're the ones who are most vulnerable. I would have a hard time accepting the fact that someone who has trauma is a very here and now. You live through trauma, but the, the idea is to get out of trauma. Once you're out of trauma, then it steps into a different realm. So, you know, the idea of oppression is, are you being oppressed right now? Something active, you're saying. Correct. It has to be a current situation. Right. I have to be honest. I've never worked with college level, I guess, civil rights movements. I think when it comes out in the art is is I, I like to portray the human suffering quality for sure. I think that it's not that I'm in, in love with suffering because that's like... You're not a goth kid? That's not... Like, going the hot topic? No. No. I, that's, that's just... No, that's not, that's not, that's not healthy for sure. But there is a strong sense of, of ownership, you know, when, when you are going through something and I've heard victims and survivors tell me a, a lot of times, like once I was able to say, this is me and this happened to me, you're, you're acknowledging the suffering, you're acknowledging the depths of your suffering, but coming out of it just becomes so much more powerful. It's just like the person who falls, when they get up, it makes everything function forward as opposed to being stuck. Well, <laughs> can you think of like a particular art piece that you've done where you were trying to explore suffering or trying to alleviate, alleviate suffering? Okay, so definitely the piece of the storm. Take courage. That's a relief. That relief, 100%, is what we're talking about where uh, St. Peter is sinking. Uh, St. Peter's out of the boat. So he took the risk. He got out of the boat. The swell is rising. The boat is moving away from him. And yet he reaches out. That That's the main thing. Mm -hmm. If you reach out for help, you no longer are static in this situation and and that's what faith is all about i think that our, our longing is to connect with a divine and and see that we are worth saving that makes all the difference we're going to talk about your family's experience of immigration in a little bit but if you don't mind giving an example of maybe an immigrant a recent immigrant that you've talked to to give folks an understanding of what they are running from and you know why they would just up and leave everything to start from you know ground zero to you know make a new life for them and them them and their families I, I think it comes from uh, simple human interactions and, and I, it can come down to very simple daily human interactions. It does have a lot to do with my social work training where you want to understand where the person is and where the person's coming from to to truly be able to listen to that person. And so sometimes that simplicity in acknowledging that the person has gotten this far, it can easily be dismissed, can easily be overlooked. And so... Living in Miami, we've got 
a melting pot of a lot. South America, uh, international to the point of African, to the Middle East. We have a, a lot of European and, you know, addressing the fact that we are part of the United States, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though at times it doesn't feel like it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I come into, t- into contact with, it's almost like two parts of society, the working labor force, which is typically uh, recent immigrant status. And then there's the more uh, intellectual uh, academia groups of circles of friends and people that might not have had any interaction with this melting pot. And so when it comes to being sensitive to the plight of the immigrant, it's almost as if I've seen both ends. I've seen my most you know recent immigrant, relations that that I I come in contact with people and it never ceases to amaze me. They have gone through so much to get to this level of safety and and they typically have left places in which human rights have not been upheld. It's, It's simple. It's we as humans, we will look for the safest place. If, if we have, you know, that element of resiliency, that's, that's what we're going to want to aim for. So I think it is a combination of, of where I stand as a daughter of an immigrant to where I stand as a person living in a community where there's a lot of immigration and people from just different countries. And typically does come back to that idea of they have been oppressed in their country of origin and and they're seeking safety. I I can't expect or or one cannot expect others to truly want to understand what others are going through. You know, like you can't necessarily train someone to be open-minded. I think it has to come, it has to come from their own wishes or their own desires. But I do think that if you believe that every human being is sacred, you know, that human life is sacred, and and that's why I would say I I create artwork anyway, there's a great responsibility to portray that type of, that level of respect for the other person. And so if the other person truly does want to understand and and see the dignity in the person in front of them, there's no other way but to acknowledge the fact that there's a history behind this person. You know, every person has experiences and every person has hardships and, and, and opportunities. And I think more than anything, this day and age, there, there are a lot of services out there to help, whether it is domestic violence, whether it is immigration, it's just a matter of, of reaching out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and acknowledging that, that you need help. I mean, even if it's financial, you know, you leave a country to go to another country to conquer it, that, that's a totally different voyage 
you know, whereas I think our founding fathers left, and, and I'm talking about United States mm-hmm. founding fathers, they left to to have freedom of religion. And that's a basic human right is to freedom of being able to practice your own religion. And it's it's almost a very strange idea to think that the United States has like a native race other than the Native Americans. Right. And also our founding document mm-hmm. basically uh, was echoing what you were saying about all men are created mm-hmm. equal, or at least equal worth. It's probably a better way of saying yeah. it. And have rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, etc. Obviously, immigrants would fall within that. Anybody would fall within that. You know? I mean, they were immigrants themselves. Right. Yeah. So, so I guess I guess it, it would be kind of bringing people back to that example of, well, where's your heritage from, and why or how did you end up here? It can't it can't be more than what? How many generations? I mean, I'm a first generation American. That, that puts me in like. <laughs> It's kind of shocking sometimes when I say that because I, I think of, you know, growing up in the States. Well, I know American history. I don't know the Caribbean history, history of the Caribbean, history of the Cuban Revolution, history of how Spain came in to the Americas only by means of how it affected the U.S. Right. So it's only my own personal wishes and desires to understand that, you know, whereas we think that our education would give, you know, every American citizen a good understanding of history, it's not. No, uh, there's different narratives that are being pushed. Uh, Yes. There's thousands of immigrants at the bottom of ocean crossings, undocumented. And it's not just here in the Caribbean, like, for example, from Cuba to Miami, but it's in, it's in Europe. Those are, I think those are more along the lines of my artwork. Those ideas, I feel, I, I see those ideas develop as installations, as performances. And, and I'm, I'm very excited about that because it's almost like I've been thinking, well, where do I want my artwork to go? Where do I want my artwork to go? And that's where I, I keep trying to figure out like wait a minute my mindset is you asked me to look at the artwork that is current right now produced it's like changing gears on on in my mind i need to change gears as to what i was thinking when i made those but right now my gears are thinking forward where do i want to go what path am i do i want to go in six months in one year and there's just so many elements of ocean life that brings about these symbolisms and maybe it's that idea that you were talking to me that you find uh, biblical themes in my artwork and so many biblical themes are being played out right now that i find are worth pulling these universal themes out they don't necessarily have to be so blatantly christian but it's these universal paying homage to anyone's journey, whether it is via the ocean, whether it is that the journey ended at the bottom of the ocean, whether it's these people that have inspired great movements 
uh, Rosa Maria Payas' father, for example, I have this wonderful idea, this wonderful installation that I really want to get going for him. And and it it's not, I mean, once you know the story of the person that I got inspiration from, it's very clear. Certain images are very clear. But I think if anybody comes into the building, I want that person to experience the the joy of these great people that have brought about these movements. But it doesn't necessarily have to be Cuban. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be even American. It's just a, um, the human spirit and the human strength and the resiliency that we have as humans to reach and want to reach. I think every human wants to feel joy. Every human wants to feel happiness. Hermosa, rimorosa, porque sufre soy tanto quebranto. Oh, patria mía. So, one of my uh, pet peeves is that in modern Christianity, of course, I'm coming from a more evangelical background, is people tend to box God in just within the, the pages of the Bible, right? And so like it seems like after the book of Revelation, amen, uh, then that's it. They tend not to bring in other examples of people and God throughout history. And I feel like there's been all kinds of uh, w- wonderful uh, inspirations or people that w- would be helpful to our own times because it's closer to our own times. So there's been prophets, there's been martyrs. Are there any historical figures that you wish more people knew about? Well, um, definitely Mother Teresa. Her words in the public view were just mind-blowing. So I, I, I do thank God for her. I think that she has represented not only women, but also people of faith and how to call things by what they are and call people out to be better people. You know, I think her quotes are always about how to improve yourself. They were not judgmental. A great deal of suffering. Nobody knew about that. She she suffered a lot. She suffered deeply and profoundly for her whole mission. Yeah, she even doubted her own faith at times. To me, that's great because we put these people on pedestals and think they just uh, they've got all the answers and they're always strong on every occasion. But kind of find out they're just as fragile as we are. Yes. I find inspiration also, my Franciscan brothers and friends, I find that their work is inspirational. I also do find music. There's certain Christian music groups that I really like. Uh, For King and Country, I find is amazing. Lauren Daigle, I'm just blown away. Need to Breathe and uh, Third Day. Also, I like the work that's being done with some of the movies, like uh, the last movie of Fatima was powerful. I think the passion was powerful. I think that the nativity was powerful. I would say that that's like our kind of our modern day movers, you know, and, and representers. They represent, like I'm proud to say, yeah, I love their work. I'm a big YouTube fan. <laughs> I've been a big YouTube fan forever. So 
I think that they have a beautiful way of tapping into I- iconic symbols and, and imagery that I think is very much Bible-based. Do you want to tell your Bono story? <laughs> Did you know about my Bono story? Yeah, that might have been one of our first conversations. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget that moment because I was just like, I was supposed to get the second part of my sentence, which was, I, I only got to can I have a kiss, but the, the second part was on my cheek. <laughs> I couldn't get to that part. And and right when I said, can I have a kiss? He, he responded because I was just so slow at getting my words out. And so, yeah, that's my Bono story. He said that it wasn't because of me, uh-huh. but he didn't want, he didn't, he was sick and he didn't want to get me sick. And he was, this was just a, a practice. He, they had a, a practice, whatever you call it. And then he was going for two big concerts the next two days. So his guard like immediately came in and I was like, okay, okay, fine, 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 fine. <laughs> that, that was my bottom story. Okay. As we mentioned before, your family's from Cuba. And if you don't mind telling their story, because I think their story helps us understand your story and your artwork even. And I'm also a big believer that everybody has a story. And if it's not told, there's something tragic about that. Thank you, actually. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to share that aspect of my heritage i would say and i do think it has a great value to who i am today so my parents left in 69 and so they left with i mean like all the other cuban immigrants that left at that time it's not to say that they had to leave everything behind because that's what they did but it was a sacrifice that i think about it today And I can't imagine doing it today. And all I know are stories. I didn't live through it. But, I mean, my grandfather hiding his rifles. My dad had polio as a baby. And so he had uh, a physical disability. And it just blew my mind to think that he was being required to do the service that any other abled, physically abled male was being required to do. So it was a very cruel image I have of those who came into power and they came into power. They, they stole the power from the people because the people at that point didn't vote on anything. There was a large amount of people who were actually, and my father explained that to me just a few months ago. He's like, I was actually for Castro. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? He's like being in school, being in the university, because he was in in the university at that time. It was uh, like a trend, you know, it was a trend. And and I think that that's how these dictators come into power. They fabricate a trend. They fabricate a movement based on just values. And it's 
quite amazing because you I in retrospect I could understand the strategies that were being used which are very similar strategies to all the other dictators that have come into power in other countries and in other parts of the world and that's when it's like mind-blowing that I come from that mm -hmm. that that's part of who I came from I mean there are times where I wonder what my life would have been if my parents weren't able to leave Cuba And, and I see that a lot in the other Cubans I meet, whether they're Cuban-American or they're Cuban of a few months ago or the stories of how they came to the U.S. I mean, when, when it comes down to that, I feel like I don't have anything to share other than the fact that my parents got here. So I think my family is my family's story is very typical of other families that came during those years. Luckily... My father was of age that he left independently, separate from my mom. My mom came out of Cuba with my grandparents. And so it's amazing to, to see all the movements that happened during that time to flee out of Cuba. And then in the aftermath of that was we were like the, the home that the cousins would come to when they left Cuba. So they would reside in our house for some time until they got their their footing and and they they left they got their own home or their own jobs and they made their own, created their own family networks here it's interesting because my husband it's my my husband's colombian he's not cuban and that's kind of a funny thing because it's like he's not cuban what this kind of it's a big thing <laughs> but his father and his grandparents were actually stationed in Cuba as Colombian ambassadors consuls in Havana. So it's interesting. It's his paternal family also has stories of fleeing from Cuba and, and both my parents have their stories of fleeing from Cuba, but it seems as if my parents embraced the American culture They assimilated much faster than my grandparents did. And I think that my my grandparents had that longing to return. And I know that my maternal grandmother returned to see her family back when I was very little. As a little kid, I was always like worried. I thought, oh, why would I be worried if she's going back to see her family? But then it ended up that I, I learned later on that one of my uncles had gotten arrested As, as an American citizen, he had gotten arrested in Cuba under the claim that he was spying. Right. Some strange stories like that. I don't know how much time he was in prison, but I know that he was there at least more than six months. And so that kind of opened up an awareness to political prisoners. Just thinking that my grandmother was over there trying to figure out how she was going to get her brother out. Even though it went in silence, I didn't, I never talked to my parents about it. I was probably maybe 11, but I do remember that. And then there is a hurt. And sometimes Cubans ask me all the time, they're like, well, you're American. What do you care about Cuba? Because a lot of the Cubans that come now have a, just a hate relationship with Cuba. They left. They don't want to hear anything about it. They feel like they've been lied to. They were brought up in these falsehoods. And my grandparents never had that. They were always very patriotic. 
so I, I think I kind of I kind of get that patriotism from I would say my maternal grandmother and my father. Well, obviously they would remember when things were better in Cuba. I mean, they, they were never perfect, but and possibly this younger generation yeah. only knows nothing but the torture and the you know, oppression and all that. It's pitiful when any culture gets gutted out like that. My wife's country is the same thing. It's a, this has all been burned down, everything that was good about it. I, I assume that there's some beauty in the ashes, uh, both from your family's experience, but also you, your work and social work at least made you more compassionate, I would say, or at least more your radar probably picks up on people suffering even when they're trying to hide it. That's a good description of it. Sometimes I guess I don't realize that part of me, but definitely I guess I guess if you've heard people's stories, you can't deny them. You know, if you've heard stories of exile, of migration, of fear, it definitely changes you. And it kind of goes to that idea of being vicariously traumatized. Uh, it's not a bad thing. Uh, I think that there's always something good that you can pull out of these things, you know? And yes, it definitely makes me more compassionate and more sensitive to others' stories. And also, it's made me sensitive to what time period did this person that I'm talking to leave from Cuba? Because according to different waves, you had different reasons why they left Mm -hmm. and and different economic means on how they left. So um, I would say my parents were were lucky and are considered to be the early wave of Cubans that left. There's there's a difference in a in in perspective here. And whereas the Cubans uh, about 10 years ago the first question was when did your parents leave? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, yeah, my parents left right at the beginning. Oh, okay. So they didn't live through no, they did not. Then now the questions now are along the lines of, if I say I'm Cuban-American, they're like, okay, they don't ask anything. They don't have that judgment on when you left. They don't care, <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting. They don't care. They're just like, whatever. Right. We're here to work and we're here to live a better life right. and get out of my way because they, you know, I would say that as the culture, the Cuban culture is very, um, what's the word? Ambitious? Yes, ambitious. Okay. That's <laughs> very ambitious. <laughs> and it's and it's nice. It is nice to see that because they they make it through. They make it to kind of being able to provide for their family. They make it to having a, a larger corporation or they make it to the point where they're ambitious enough to start non-for-profit organizations and and fight for rights back home so i think it's awesome it's very inspiring that's for sure so if folks want to check out your work how would you direct them? Definitely the Instagram account is kind of a daily thing. It's very much up to date. The website is more thorough, although it's just never, you know, you update your account every 
two weeks, every two months, not even two weeks. So definitely the Instagram and that one's public. Okay. The Instagram fine arts one is public. And can you tell folks that your website address and your, your Instagram account oh. is just your name, right? Yes. So the Instagram account. You're a typical artist. Way. Not not very good at promoting, but okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So my Instagram account is very much up to date, and it's Natalie Placencia Fine Art. Mm-hmm. So it's Natalie N A T A L I E Placencia P L A S E N C I A Fine Art F I N E A R T. And the website is also part of, in, it's in my profile on Instagram, but my website is my full name, natalieplacencia.com. Facebook is there and it's under Natalie Placencia Fine Art. All right. Yeah. If you're still in an art and faith frame of mind, definitely give our conversations with Steve Scott a listen, which begins back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 226. Or if you want some more art talk with a Cuban Sabrosa, give 189 and 209 a listen as we talk with art collector, poet, professor, and Cuban exile, Ricardo Paljosa. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.